Can I say we'll give it up? Jeff Tui, welcome to the podcast. I was trying to remember today. I mean, we obviously met over 20 years ago. Yes, I'd say that's a safe bet. Let's see. How, yep. I was underage when we were playing at bars <laughs> together. <laughs> Where were you? You know, same Fat Cat and, and, and Theodore's. Yeah, I'm and, trying to think of how we met. I think we might have met through Adios Pantalones. Oh, my. The Yukon band. Yes. Um, and I think, I don't know if you saw us or we saw you, yeah. but then we used to like trade off gigs. I yeah. remember you, you brought us to the Fat Cat to play with you guys. Yeah. We brought you to this place, Bohemian <laughs> 2 in Torrington, Connecticut. <laughs> I don't remember it was like up the up the stairwell. It, yes. had, like, it had like a fish aquarium in it and stuff. You had to and drag whatever. all your shit up yep, there. Yeah, you had to drag all the shit. Probably run your own sound too. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, and you got a hundred bucks and you were happy. Yeah, yeah. You know, you For got, the whole band. You got yeah, yeah. and pizza. Of course. You got a pizza, pizza. Oh. And if you're underage and getting free drinks, you're like, this is a, this is <laughs> this, this is, is the dream. This is what I've been working for all my life. I'm gonna do this with my life. <laughs> yeah. All right, so. I like to start the podcast. So you grew up in Southbridge? Uh, Southbury, Connecticut. Southbury. Yeah, since I was seven. I was born in New York City, and then I was in New Jersey for a little while, and then we ultimately moved to uh, Connecticut. So yeah, I'm a tri-state kid. Yeah, and it's just north of New Haven. Uh, yeah, so Southbury uh, is exit 16 off of 84. If you're it's paying between, attention. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's next door to Newtown, Connecticut, Yeah, which is... Uh, Always a dark reference for people, but they immediately yes. go, oh, okay, I know where that is. <laughs> right, right. Ends the conversation quick. But, uh, no, yeah, so it's between, like, Danbury, Waterbury, you know, yeah. so about, you know, 30 to 40 minutes out of Hartford. So, yeah. yeah, like, western Connecticut. And can you hit me with an early musical memory? Maybe maybe a record that was spinning in the crib that was really interesting or, you know, something early on before you got in, found your instrument and found your voice and, and started writing, but just something that was floating around where you're like, what is this? Yeah, I think uh, the the first first couple of acts I remember hearing, I always tell people that my music sounds like, and it probably actually doesn't, but it sounds like a combination of ABBA, mm. Creedence Clearwater Revival, mm. Michael Jackson, mm. Neil Diamond and show tunes. Holy shit. I think I remember Peter and the Wolf. That was one of my first musical memories of all time. That, yeah. that I think might be my first musical memory. Was that was that something that your folks were playing or like how did you was it on the radio? Uh, I, like, I was very uh, I was very fortunate. So I'm I'm adopted and um so there aren't a lot of musical people in my family. Okay. So I think that it really stuck out to them immediately. They're like, this kid's like got a thing going on. Like my mother would come into the room and I'd be like singing myself to sleep. Mm. So I was very fortunate that they were so intuitive to be like, we got to start feeding this kid some, some right. stuff and see how it goes. So right. at first it was, you know, I remember that Peter and the Wolf stuff. I mean, then music, I remember I got like the Annie cassette. Uh-huh. You know, and wore that one out. Uh, I remember my father would listen to Waylon and Willie. Uh, uh-huh. one, one of my first memories, country-wise, is probably uh, Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up To Be Cowboys. Cowboys ain't easy to love and they're harder to hold. They'd rather give you a song than diamonds or gold. Long star belt buckles and old faded Levi's And each night begins a new day If you don't understand him, he don't die young He'll probably just ride away Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys I was fortunate my mother then, you know Enrolled me in Dalcrows at Fairleigh Dickinson University, which is like movement to music for listeners who don't know. And then after that, it was Suzuki cello. So my mother had to learn how to play the cello along with me. So, yeah. Wow. But uh, I think Peter and the Wolf is the first memory. But then those other artists I mentioned are, you know, Michael Jackson was like everything. Well, I was, I was of obsessed. Course. Well, you couldn't avoid it, yeah. even if you tried. And uh, MTV was candy, especially for a kid or whatever. You mm-hmm. know, there are definitely certain things where my mother would shut the television off. Right. <laughs> but, right. uh, you know, when it first started, I remember just like devouring MTV. Yeah. Left well, and right. Sweet was... Child of Mine, The Escape Club, Wild Wild West. I remember hearing oh, that. Oh, my God. Um, Terrence, uh, Terrence, uh, Terrence Trent, Trent Darby, Darby, like Wishing Well. Come on, man. Uh, in Excess. Yeah. U- UB40. Like, yeah. Like MTV was everything. Every MTV age. was the, the source. Yeah. That was the well. Yeah. And they only had a couple things. They had what, like total... 
was a total recall what is, or uh total recall total recalls a movie but i think it was also like so or it was like you know there's something where they were all in chairs with remote controls and then you had the grind and then downtown <sighs> julie brown and all that stuff yeah. but for the most part it was music yeah i mean as a lot of people know right i've always wanted to make a t-shirt that says i want my mtv uh-huh. and then on the back it says back <laughs> You know, because it was so good. It was good. I mean, that was, but, and, and what an incredible time to be aware because music now had a visual. Yeah. But, and you could put those two things together. And, and I would, I would argue that so many of the visuals, so many of the, of the videos were more important than the music. Yeah. It was like a mini movie. Well, as far as like from a marketing standpoint, if you think about it, I mean, like imagine how much the idea of image changed as soon as music. Oh my god! Like because you know you would have all the photos back in the day of Zeppelin next to the airplane, you know, right. Jimi Hendrix lighting the guitar on fire, right? But like as soon as you had a music video, image must have like gone through the roof because now you weren't just looking at photos; you were watching these people in motion and what they were wearing, and right? How they were behaving and the stories that they were telling. Yeah, it's unreal. Man, what a great time! A to be in a band. And to be inspired and to see all this shit in real time happening in front of you. I mean, I remember, I mean, I just, I, I was glued to MTV. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, what an advertisement too. Perfect. What do they say? Labels were happy. Bands were happy. They were happy. Like, what what is it like they used to, they used to say you used to tour to promote the record. Uh Now you make the record to promote the tour, (laughs) like or whatever. But imagine what, what it like the advertising you could get too. I mean, I remember watching those, uh those Aerosmith videos like Angel like all the permanent vacation stuff and then oh when Pump god. came out oh my god and you know Steven Tyler is a, a ridiculous front man so to s- watch that you're like I have to go see that someday right you right. know because like it, it was like I mean for advertising purposes and marketing it was out of control too but, but you know uh, gosh I mean I remember like Flock of Seagulls to Bruce Springsteen mm-hmm. the, the, it, every every genre to you know, grunge. Yeah. You know the 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 video to uh, Allison Chains uh, Wood. Yep. I remember it. I, I mean, mm-hmm. these are things that have been put in my brain forever. Yeah. Every Smashing Pumpkins, Pearl Jam, uh, Jeremy. I mean, like, holy shit. Yeah. Why did it go away? Why do you so, think it went away? Why do I think it went away? Why I- would MTV fail now? You know, that is a good question. I've never thought about that, so that's a great question. Why did they stop? Well, everything's a business. So there clearly was a reason with the viewers. And I don't know if it's they decided what they were going to start feeding people or not, but I remember watching MTV slowly fade away where it was like pretty much by the end of it, it was just Total Request Live or whatever that was. TRL, right? TRL. With Carson. Or uh, or some um, reality TV. Reality TV came in, and I think that reality TV killed it, you know, which is... Awful. How? But, <laughs> Just but, awful. But I don't, I don't know, man. Anyway. But I have I have an argument that I say with people, and of course people will argue with me a lot. I'm like, I think that the 90s were the best decade for music. And so, of course, mm. if you say that to people, mm. especially if they're older, like, are you out of your mind? The mm-hmm. 80s, the police, this, that, mm-hmm. that. I'm like, I'm not saying the best music came out of then. I was like, but the variety, to your point of what you mm-hmm. were talking about with MTV, there was something for every, like, in you could turn on uh, the local channel for me was KC101 or KISS95.7. Both were broadcast out of Hartford, Connecticut. So, but you would listen to these stations and it would be like, you'd hear TLC Waterfalls, like, followed by, like, something off of, like, the Nevermind record, mm-hmm. followed by Mother Mother by Tracy Bonham. Right. You know, followed by Boys to Men. Like, it was just super like, diverse. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, there was something for everybody in the 90s so mm-hmm. if you were a country person you know that was when garth was starting to slam and mm-hmm. kenny chesney all that country was taking on a whole new mm-hmm. level of popularity if you were into singer songwriter kind of stuff you know those guys are still crank- sting had 10 sumner's tales and, mm. and all those kind of things incredible uh, i remember that video too yeah to uh if i ever lose my faith yes yeah he's on a boat yep yeah. Right. And so then you had, uh, if you were into jam bands like Fish, Dave Matthews, like I mean, they were all blowing up. It's uh, incredible. The R and B, Janet Jackson, Michael Jackson was still making music. Yeah. Boys to Men, Mariah Carey. Yeah. If you were into hip hop, Biggie, Tupac, like yeah. everything was exploding at that time. And then uh, we haven't even brought up alternative yet in this right. conversation. Yo, rock, right. Poison was still making records. Right. Kind of, if you were still into that, Guns and Roses was still doing Use Your Illusions. Still incredible uh, videos. Yeah. And then you have that whole 
Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Nirvana, Jesus, and stuff man. like that. So like the '90s, it is some of my favorite music. But you know, either way, I think my argument for that is the diversity. And MTV yes. did promote that for a very long time. You get yes. to the point, and they had all the programming. Yes, right? they exactly. Had, they had Yo MTV Raps. Right. They had Headbangers Ball at exactly. midnight. You know, right. I mean, it, right. It was a great time for music. And and such a convergence of. Not only music, but te- technology, video, interviews. It was, I mean, but that, that was the source. You know, that was, yeah. it. you know, we, we all listened to it. And it was pretty good, actually. And it was pretty cool, right? You know, if I look back. You know, and, and I, I ask kids that sometimes. Say when, when younger people come to my show, not even, not even kids, like, you know, 20-year-olds or whatever, you know, 18-year-olds, they'll come to our shows. And they're like, we love the band. I'm like, can I ask you a question? <laughs> Does music suck now for the most part in the mainstream, or am I just getting older? Like, no, it sucks. I'm like, oh, okay, thank, thank God. God, thank God, <laughs> yeah. thank God. All right, so sorry, we got off on a little bit of a tangent, but well, it's good that's what we're here for. This is what this does. Um, all right, so Southbury, Connecticut, mm-hmm. you are inspired by these five very, very different influences. How does that manifest? Do you do you pick up a guitar first? Are you playing piano? Do you start to sing? Like what's what's happening here? Do you start writing? You know, yeah, I remember writing songs. I remember one of the first songs I wrote was called "Shedding a Tear for You." Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like a, it was a you know like Aerosmith, you know '90s yes. rock ballad kind yeah. of thing, playing a rake like in my parents' backyard. Uh-huh. I remember we had people painting the house, <laughs> so the so the the guys when they did their ladders, you know, those painters they have the ladders that have a long platform, yeah, yeah, yeah. and they left it next to the deck, so I had a catwalk that I could walk on oh, too, perfect for that. So I think it was writing songs <laughs> in my head, but uh, honestly, a, a big thing for me was theater. Yeah. A lot of theater, yeah, musical theater, musical theater. and all, Broadway all, all shows that kind of stuff. And, yeah, yeah. But, but I mean like performing in them too, you know, yeah. doing a lot of performing that way. And there was like a proper musical theater community in Southbury? There was a Seven Angels Theater was where I did a lot of growing up and was ultimately where I actually got my equity card, um, mm. you know, to be part of the union um, for actors. But there, was, there were other theaters as well. You know, the schools all had programs as well. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to have watched it come full circle because – a lot of people are like, well, how do you define your music? Because some of it is very New Orleans. Some of it's a little more like alt-country. Yeah. Some of it's a little more rock. And when we just played in Nashville, we had a, a reviewer come in, and he called it Theatrical Americana. And I'm like, hmm. I'm like, that is it. Hmm. So, so the first taste of it was doing it in performance, in a, in a theater mm-hmm. type thing. Uh, I started taking guitar seriously probably around 12 or 13. I got on the honor roll, and so my parents bought me an Ibanez Silver Cadet come on. and a PV, uh, PV Amp. At that phase of my life, I was learning Danzig tunes and Nirvana and all that stuff. Mother. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, learning all that stuff. So, so. early 90s. Yeah. This, yeah, we're looking at a uh, first time picking up a guitar, seventh grade, 1995-ish, probably, mm-hmm. 94, 95, for, okay. for picking up a guitar. Always had like a Casio keyboard and stuff like that, but the voice was always the first thing. And then I started really digging into guitar around seventh grade. And I remember by eighth grade, I was running a running a business where uh, I would trade people if they gave me a CD I would transpose things for them like I'd put like all the power chords for them and stuff like that like, I remember like writing glycerine out for people <laughs> uh, that's a bush reference well, that, was, that, that was a good way to get ass in 8th grade <laughs> if you knew gli- if you knew glycerine and Wonderwall Bro, and you know Wonderwall still works and still I, works and you know, I should try glycerine sometimes I mean I'm married now but I should see the effect it has on the audience I don't want That record it was, great. I, was great. Yeah. And I was in, this is 1994. Uh, no, no, yes, 1994. I'm living in Germany, mm-hmm. right? So it's like a PG year after high school. Right. And I go to Germany, and I think I was hip to Bush. Bush is a band, everybody. Uh, I was hip <laughs> to Bush, and um, they were playing in Cologne. Germany, which was about, I don't know, an hour train ride from where I was. Mm-hmm. And I saw them in this tiny little rock club. I mean, I'm, when I say tiny, I mean, what would, 
it's like, like a crescent like ballroom like no, or no like a small fraction oh, a yeah. fraction of that like mercury lounge new york city 300 cap i'm, I'm thinking like like arlene's grocery oh like, wow like okay a tunnel situation yeah and they they were touring on what is it 20 stones or 10 16 stones 16 stones Sorry, four, four more stones than yep. I needed. <laughs> um, but incredible. I saw Green Day there. I mean, wow. I mean that they were touring on Dookie, yep. you know, like which is still it's another cool. incredible record. He just sat in with a band in London. I don't know if you saw that online. I didn't see it. Some band was covering, I think they were covering Basket Case, and he just got up on stage and sang it with them. And like the, you know, everyone's like losing their losing minds. their shit because the place is only like holds like 150 people. It's just some pub that yeah. has a cover band. I mean, but th- those records, those, they, they, this, it's still visceral to me. It's, it's, I can see colors. I can, it was fucking real. It was super real. And you could go see yeah. these huge bands playing these tiny little clubs and, you know, maybe their first European tour. Uh, I was fucking blown away. Anyway, shout out Bush, uh, 16 Stones, killing yeah. record. I mean, still yeah. to this day, um, Come Down is probably the best, in my opinion, that's Great the best tune. song on that t- on that record. Just like that groove. Yeah. And the guitars just start ripping. Yeah. yeah. So good. Damn, that was a good record. Yeah, we're going to listen to that later. We're going to listen to that on a break <laughs> for sure. All right, so all right, so doing musical theater, singing in musical theater right. in grade school, mm-hmm. high school. Yep, even through high school. By high school, I now had a band. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it was around eighth grade. I got picked on a lot in seventh grade, actually. Like, I think everybody usually has their year where it ain't going. Mm-hmm. Seventh grade was my year. So I played a lot of guitar. And by eighth grade, now you were the guy with the guitar. Right. No one's fucking with you. Right. Right. <laughs> so uh, I remember that we convinced all of our, uh, I, I don't know if it was a teacher I had to convince. I think I had to convince the vice principal, and I was always in his office anyway. So uh, <laughs> it worked out that <laughs> While way. While we're here. While we're here. While we're here, I wanted to bring something up to you. Now that I got my foot in the door, we somehow convinced the administration to allow our band to play during lunch waves. Wow. So we would play, you know, we had like five songs. So yeah. it was the same five songs every lunch wave. You know, the poor snack lady must have been losing her mind. But yeah. uh, I'm trying to think. It was she probably was Fortunate heavily, Son. Heavily probably, medicated. Yeah, it was, probably fortu- it was probably Fortunate Son that we were playing, <laughs> you know, and, and stuff like the Ramblin' Man by Allman Brothers. But yeah, sure. we convinced them to let us play lunch waves. So we didn't have to go to like two classes. Hip. Yeah. So that was kind of, so by high school, now I had, you know, a band that I was putting together. Mm-hmm. Now I was starting to write music, mm-hmm. you know, and take it more seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was still doing theater at the same time as well. And then at that point, you know, big influence for a lot of people was Dave Matthews at that point. Sure. You know, I was I was ripe for that. So, you know, Dave Matthews was probably the biggest influence on me guitar-wise for a while. And then I've since grown since then. But that was like, sure, you know, I was really popping around high school. Well, in... Toad in- the Wet Sprocket. I think that I think that Dave, you know, what Dave did was because a lot of that early '90s shit was not acoustic guitar based, yeah. and he made it funky too. He made right. the acoustic guitar funky. I mean, well, you listen to so much to say. I mean, Dave Matthews is an incredible guitar player, right? You know, and right. it was. But cool. I, but I think a lot of, you know, yes, his shit was syncopated. It was Carter Beaufort. You know that that's that's the motherfucker that made it funky. Oh yeah, you know. So it's a combination of things, but. Dave, to me, in the early 90s was, oh, it's acoustic guitar based, you know, and it has a groove and it has a pocket and it and it moves and interesting melodies. And that just wasn't and instrumentation. Yeah. Violin and sax. And it wasn't offensive to the parents because it had smooth jazz gateway. Yes. Drug it, it, was like a, it was like it was a <laughs> gateway, gateway to drug to jazz. Yeah. Um, but I, I and I, most importantly, in high school. The ladies loved it. Ladies loved it. So let's go. So we're learning Dave Matthews. Now. Yes, exactly. You know, yeah. Yep. yep yeah. yeah. So all right. So you're playing. You're playing in high school. You put a band together. What's the next step? Uh, you know, we kept doing that. Our first professional gig was at the Brass Horse in Waterbury, Connecticut, and this was like where all the young people would go. Like it was. A, it was a hip little place. I had like stained, like not stained glass, like frosted glass. They had like these very cool those fans. You know the fans that are like more like a vertical fan. Mm-hmm. So they're on a pole and they're like okay. liquor. Okay. And this place was just jammed. There was this duo band that would play downstairs called the Shots. You know they'd cover like Cecilia and like probably like you know Beth by Kiss <laughs> you uh-huh, know, and stuff uh-huh. like that. And they offered us a gig. They're like, do you want to play upstairs? They found us because we were playing at like. St. John of the Cross's Picnic, which was next to Quasi Amusement Park. And the owner came over and he was like, do you guys want to come play at my bar? I'm like, 
Yeah. Yes. Didn't even ask if it paid. The answer is they yes. gave us two hundred dollars for the for the night. Um, we may or may not have had beverages at the location, um, but it was amazing because we were playing for an older crowd. And mm-hmm. I remember, I remember in that moment. I mean, we were and we were carrying equipment up the stairs. Yeah. And you know, doing our own sound or whatever. But I just remember being like, "Holy shit! I think I'm going to do this, like <laughs> you know, for like a living." Got or through. at least try, yeah. You know, like you like, know, you, what I want to do. You crack the door open. You're like, "What's over here? Like, yeah. this is nice. Is yeah. this? Could this be my life? Yeah. You know. Yeah, and it has been. You know. But, yeah. Uh, so yeah, and then uh, you know, we're we're at about uh, we're we're probably a couple months away from uh, me meeting flying lessons. <laughs> at, this, <laughs> at this point in my story, <laughs> I love it, man. We. <laughs> Do you remember? Oh, shit. Suck around. It was a summer. We had a kick in the woods. It went under. And then it was great guitar solos. Yeah, great tune. Oh, Takia Machine. I love that. I love love that song. That's a great tune. That's so funny, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great tune. It didn't have like, it had like the little like a logo for like a flaunt, like the guy with the wings, right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I remember that. Oh my god! You know we still play, and then so we we weren't playing there back then, but we still play at theaters once in a while. If we're no if, shit. We, if we're passing through town, I love it. A lot of times we're heading up to Vermont or whatever. We'll grab mm-hmm. a Friday at theaters, and they're st- they're still kicking. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. I love that joint. I mean, Legendary. I have so many memories. I can't even tell you. I can't even tell you how many memories. Like we did New Year's Eve there. We thought we were the fucking golden gods. Like yeah. we would play there. You know. And put bands together for various things and add uh, Kit Carlson, who later started playing with um, Stephen Kellogg. And like we, we thought, man, we made it. This is it. Yeah. We're well, and for, for, for listeners who don't know, Theodore's is in Springfield, Massachusetts. Springfield, a barbecue. K- killer, joint. killer barbecue. Killing barbecue. Upstairs is the longest, oldest running billiards, Smith's Billiards. Yeah. Upstairs. Yeah. Um, and they're still kicking. They still have live music. And it's, I love and it's awesome. That. So if you're in Springfield and you're craving barbecue or blues, or music. Or music. Go to theaters. Or pool. You know. Keith and Keith, you owe me money for this plug. <laughs> Is it still two Keiths? It's still the two Keiths. Oh, my God. It's still the two Keiths. Holy the fat cat's shit. gone. But oh. Springfield, Springfield's... Making a move for a renaissance, man. They got the MGM Please. there now. Yes, yes. Worthington is beautiful. They got like lights like strung up. They redid a lot of the outsides of the buildings. Theodore's still kicking. I mean, we um, we mucked it up in Springfield for a number of years. Fat Mar- Mardi Gras closed though. Oh, yeah. Was it a COVID thing? I don't know. No, I think it lasted past COVID. I don't know. I haven't been there in a while. I'm married. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Next question. Yes. <laughs> But uh, no, Spring, Springfield's really making a push. Like I said, uh, my buddy well, is doing loophole, should, man. loophole brewing. Yeah, well, you know, it's a cool town, man. The restaurants are great. You, you know, there's you, a lot of great food there, you know, and people. Student Prince. People are Great music. German there's, food. I mean, like. Student Prince. Uh, there's a great Mexican joint that used to be, is where Naismith's, the sports bar used to yeah, be. Yeah, I remember uh, Jackalope has some really cool stuff. That's a new place that's just open. That's really great. Um, Springfield's a cool town, man. And people love music there. Bruno Mars is doing two dates there right now in the in that arena. They're trying to do big no shows. Kidding. I saw Aerosmith well, there. Like, Springfield's a cool it, town, man. It should be. I yeah. mean, it should be. It has the infrastructure to yeah. be great. It, it has a bad rap. You know, I think maybe crime was high like a little while back. But like, yeah, crime you got was some, very high. You know, you have some, you know, I mean, Northampton's a cute town and I like going up there, but like Springfield's got some grit and I, yeah. I, I, like, I like grit. Yeah. Being, being, you know, a New Yorker for a lot of time. You know? Yeah. But uh, I highly recommend, you know, if you ever got some time to kick around and you're passing through Springfield on I-91, man, drop in and go to one of these restaurants because... Uh, they're cool, and there's good music in the town, too. I mean, shout out to Theodore's, because they were one of the... And, and Fat Cat, although Fat Cat isn't there. But, yeah. but, but that was that was like that was our stomping ground. That was like yeah. where we were inspired. That was where... The Salty Dog was open, too, back then. I remember yes. that with the mechanical bull. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, let's get, let's get Springfield together. I've, I have this... Um, I have this thing in my in my brain, and I've been saying it for you know over twenty years. As soon as I left, basically, uh, I was like, you know, if I make a, too much money, which all right, let's see what happens. Yep. You know, hey. but I want to buy one of those old factory buildings in Lower Holyoke. Uh huh. 
in the flats of Holyoke. These beautiful turn of the century yeah. factories. Waterbury, Connecticut is very similar too, yeah. Right? And I, and I love that about New England is that you have these little pockets and this architecture is killing. And these spaces, these areas, these neighborhoods that could use something. Right. Some, you know, I would imagine that that's, that's Northampton 40 years ago, right? Yeah. It had a similar kind of vibe, a similar aesthetic. Yeah. So, you know, if I make a gajillion dollars, I want to go buy one of these cool brick factory, old factory buildings in, in, in the flats of Holyoke and make it, you know, the bottom floor is a cafe and a this. And, and the second floor is uh, an artist studio, you know, physical yeah, like art, art space. Yeah. Art space. Third, that's where I live, you know, and the fourth is, is my studio, you yeah. know, like this is my, and then I'm like, but how much time am I really going to spend in Holy, in the flats of Holy? But the point is, if it goes well, maybe a lot. If it goes well, <laughs> you'll have but, a private jet by then because right. you're buying a, well, a helicopter. Stuff. I'm thinking yeah, I'm landing yeah. on the crib, uh, but no. But the, the, there are some really cool pockets of art and culture and and food and drink, and it's just waiting for that renaissance. Yeah, you know, the same way that Northampton felt it, and yeah. East Hampton is feeling it now. You know, yeah. Anyway, East Hampton's cool. I got my I, I, I got my uh, t-shirts printed there. All of our merch gets printed there. Oh no shit! And there, there's a couple cool little places in East Hampton. Yeah, like you know, good-looking restaurants and stuff like that. It's like it's coming together. It's like where it, the hipsters go, they don't want to be in Northampton. That's right. Northampton is like a little posh. Yeah. East Hampton is like yeah. Let's go. Yeah, let's make something here. You know, <laughs> and then, and then it'll get too cool, and then those people and will go away from there. And then where do we go? I mean, where do we go after Chicopee? I don't know. <laughs> Memorial Drive, motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Let's take a short break. Sounds good. Hey there, I am Boomer. And I'm Pixie Ola. Our podcast, Service Entrance People, is for and about the gritty, underpaid, underprivileged service industry workers of the world. Unite! Day in and day out, we walk through the parking lot of broken dreams. So if you're interested in listening and sharing in the war stories of the, the industry, and if you're curious as to what us, the help, are really thinking, we are going to educate you with stories of the strange, shocking, and hilarious, because laughing is the only way that we can think to even try to get our ways through each day. <laughs> this industry is one that we absolutely, truly love. And although you'll hear horror stories and rants and bitching that we have to work at work because that's the kind of petty betty that we are, we kid because we care. You can find service entrance people on all major platforms as well as YouTube and would like to say thank you for tuning into my friend Brian Chartrand and the So The Story Goes podcast. I've known him for longer than he or I would admit and yes, he is that cool in real life. What's up y'all? My name is Tanner Sigfort, owner of Groove Booking and I have a podcast called Great Exposure. First of all, thanks for listening to So The Story Goes. Brian is a great guy, a friend, and this is a fantastic and very well done podcast. The title of my podcast, Great Exposure, is a play on the term us musicians have always heard when being lowballed for a gig followed by, but this gig is great exposure. I am a professional musician and booking agent, and through the years I've met so many amazing entertainers. I created this podcast to have open format conversations with the artists and DJs I have the pleasure of working with. Being that my guests are always artists of some sort, we typically talk about music and the industry. However, sometimes we get on long, drawn-out conversations about very random topics, and that's where I really get to see their personalities shine, and I get to know them on a deeper level than just their music careers, and that is my favorite part of the show. I appreciate Brian featuring this ad on his podcast, and I really hope you enjoy Great Exposure. Available on Spreaker, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Now, back to So the Story Goes. Where do you go to college? Uh, I went to three colleges, much to my, oh my. Par parents' dismay. No, I, I went to UConn originally mm -hmm. uh, as a music education major. Uh, that's where I met Johnny B. and Adios Pantalones and oh, yeah. Floyd Kellogg, who's with uh, Andy Frasco's band right now. And then Johnny B. still plays sax in my band. And nice. And we have an old-school hip-hop cover band called Concrete Jungle that still plays. Nice. So I go to UConn. Then I wasn't feeling what I was doing there, so I went to Quinnipiac just to keep things going, and then I ultimately ended up at Emerson College in Boston, yeah. where I double majored in acting and also in marketing communications, PR advertising. 
And playing music all the while. Playing gigs, yeah. I think, did we ever play at Great Scott together once, too? Now this I'm is sure coming we back did. to me. Yeah, I'm sure Boston. we did. Great Scott sounds a lot, yeah. very familiar. So, yeah, ended up going to school in Boston, playing gigs up there. Uh, and then at the end, you know, doing theater, playing with my uh, band Little Rich Boys that then became 28 and Waiting. We would continue oh my those God, gigs. All this shit is yep. coming back coming to back, me. Right? Yeah. When you touch me like this. <laughs> it's all coming back. Yeah. Um, Shout out to Celine Dion. But, uh, but yeah, finished college, and then that was when I decided to make my first solo record because it was time to make a decision. Um, you know, a lot of the guys I was, I was playing with weren't sure, or several of them, you know, weren't sure if they wanted this to be their full time. Right. Or if they, it was just something they wanted to do front. And I was positive that this was what I wanted to do. Right. So at the time, I was a big fan of the band Percy Hill. Uh-huh. Uh, they were kind of like, coincidentally, because I'm looking at your record wall here, they sound like Jamiroquai meets Steely Dan. No shit. With, with jamming. Steely Dan being one of my favorite bands. And Jamiroquai being one of my favorite bands. Agreed. So uh, Aaron Katz, who was the uh, the drummer, singer from that band and one of the songwriters, uh, we linked up at one of his shows. He would play at Colorado Brewery with his solo band in Danbury, <laughs> where I know Flying Lessons also played. <laughs> and uh, I was like, hey, I want to make a record. He's like, okay, we'll come up. So we recorded the first one in... Uh, up in Dover, New Hampshire, and that's when the, Dover. the that's when the Jeff Tui solo thing started. Just because you know, and it wasn't because oh, I want it to be about me and I want it to be my name on it. I just knew that I was like, if it's my name, as long as I don't quit, I can keep going. It's you, yeah. yeah you know, it, it wasn't because I needed the credit. I mean, truth be told, it's nice to have a band vibe because it feels like everybody cares. Being a solo artist can be a very lonely thing, right? As I'm sure you've experienced in and out of you know time or whatever, because yeah. you feel like you're the one who's the only one who's invested. There's power there too. Yeah, there's you know? there's power, and also like you know, you take all the and, you take the financial risks, risk, but you also make the and most the reward it works out. Yeah, right. Right. So uh, so that's that's when the solo career kind of launch was after college. And then what happens? Do do you move to New York? I moved to New York. Yeah, I was talking to uh, Scott Wheeler, who was a teacher there, who I'm still in touch with. He's a brilliant uh, chamber music composer. And I was like, yeah, I was like, I guess it's either L.A. or New York. And he said, you know, and he was a guy who did not hand out compliments freely. So he went, go to New York. Hmm. You'll do well there. And, you know, truth be told, I'm a, I'm a live guy. I love doing, I mean, I love recording records and stuff like that, but I was really moving there to act. Hmm. And, I, and I loved live theater more than I loved film and TV. Hmm. So New York was, was the move for me. Natural. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, was bartending in the city. You know, I had a job lifeguarding at the U- Millennium UN Plaza. I got fired from that job because um, I had a gig on New Year's Eve and I told him I can't work here and like well we need you to work here I'm like well it's not gonna happen not happen so bartending or whatever you know I had a, a, a independent record deal uh, I got it about like it was offered to me at the back fence in on Bleecker Street and uh, I had a record deal for two to three years independent deal and then the company folded uh, when the economy went to shit in yeah. 2008 uh, so I had to make a decision. So I decided to bartend instead of going back into the corporate world and uh, kind of just kept grinding from there. Yeah. You know, and I was in New York doing that and just kept going and going and taking cover gigs or whatever. And then that started to flourish. And so music became the thing. I mean, I love acting. I still love it. But I took a break from it because it was time to make a decision. And the thing I loved about music was that I was driving. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't begging for work. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. I was driving it. Even if it was in the corner of a restaurant right. playing something, I could get the gig, get the money, and whatever. Whereas like right. acting, I was you're constantly waiting a lot. You know, until you build up your name, which happened for me theater wise too. After a while, but like it felt like panhandling for a gig. Yeah, and you know, and if you start acting, you know, you gotta give up your bartending gig. You know, put your relationship on hold and hope that all those things are there when you come back. You know, whereas with music. I was I was driving it and and you know with, with from a musical standpoint when you're the creator because I mean that's you know the songwriter right or whatever I remember talking to a director who had cast me and I was like she's like so are you going to be a musician or an actor I was like you know and there are a lot of great people who do both like Michael Cerveris is a phenomenal actor does a lot of TV and film uh, phenomenal live Broadway actor and plays in a band called Loose Cattle now he had a great solo thing he lives in New Orleans now and I remember reaching out to him it was kind of him he he hit me back and I was like. I'm trying to make a decision. I don't know what to do. He's like, everyone's going to tell you you can't do both, but you can. Mm-hmm. But I do remember a director saying to me, do music. And at first it like kind of hmm. hurt because they were my director. Right. You know, so it was a little bit of an ego blow, but then they immediately followed up. They're like, if you do music and it goes well, 
you're going to get the roles because unfortunately a lot of this casting is sometimes more about name recognition than talent right, right. in certain situations. Some, some theaters don't do that. They base it on talent, but the advice she gave me was, was incredible because she was essentially saying do music because you can establish your brand instead of just going into mm-hmm. the file cabinet of short white dudes who sing rock and roll. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, so right. that's how that decision, that's how the real commitment to, being an original music artist, solo artist, happened, you know. And and let's talk about, um, let's definitely talk about Hudson Delta. Yep, that's the, the most the, recent the, one, yeah. The most recent record. Yeah. I listened to it today, and what struck me was that, you know, you move from kind of a New Orleans vibe to a country vibe, and there's a singer-songwriter vibe. And, and one of my favorite ones, and I'm spacing on the name, uh has kind of like a soul groove to it. I wonder if it's, uh, is it Hear Me Out where I'm singing falsetto? Hear Me Out, yeah. yes. Well, I'm a huge Prince fan. Yeah. And so actually that, I wasn't sure that was going to be a falsetto thing, but I was sick with what might have been COVID because it was January 2020. No shit. I, I'm one of those guys like, I think I had it already, you know, like, but <laughs> I did not have a chest voice and I was yeah. slugging on Jameson and trying to, you know, clear the phlegm, you know, all yeah. that stuff. And so, but I'm a huge Prince fan. I was like, I, I turned to Brian Forbes, who was the co-producer and the engineer. I was like, should I try it? Like, you know, that kind of vibe. And yeah. he's like, yeah, go for it. And it, it stuck. And, yeah. you know, I love Prince. So, yeah, that's, it fluctuates. I mean, Hudson Delta, a lot of the records were like that. Cocoon, which was recorded in Northampton with uh, Danny Bernini and a lot of those guys. You know, that that was, I, f- I do feel like the records have gotten better and better. We'll see how the next one is. Um, but Hudson Delta is a conglomeration of of. 10, 10 to 12 years of grind. It was 10 years between the albums because I was licking mm. my wounds, mm-hmm. waiting for a new record deal to come mm. by, waiting mm. for something else before I did it. And finally, you know, my, my wife was diagnosed with cancer and uh, I needed something positive in my life. I was like, I have to just go make this record because I'm going to lose my mind. If not, like I need an outlet Yeah, that's true and whatever. And so brought in a bunch of the musicians that I've been playing with for 10 years in New York, you know, and there, there are a lot of them. So it's, there's people slipping in and out like a Steely Dan record Yeah, from different, and you know, that whole record is a tribute to my time in New York, you know, I mean, and all the sounds that you hear walking down the street, it's yeah. such, it's such an incredible city. Agreed. And and for some reason I've always had a knack toward Southern music. Like, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Like, so what is that? Because I, I, don't know. I, I would have sw- I would have sworn that you spent some time in New Orleans, like yeah. living there and and being a part of that. So many horn lines and and kind of uh, second line vibes. Yeah, it, like, it came from a it came from theater. So yeah. Bourbon Street was more of like a cabaret song to me in my head. Interesting. And then we brought in the right musicians and Danny Bernini. You know, we got a hold of Lenny Pickett from Tower of Power and Saturday Night Live. He brought on the horns. Terry Adams from NRBQ came in and played. Yeah, because he's he's you know from up in the valley, in Massachusetts too, and it took on that vibe, and then it became such a thing because Bourbon Street had done so well, was getting millions of plays. Then I'm like, okay, like because I you know I didn't know who Tom Waits was. Uh, <laughs> I, no, I knew I knew of him, sure, but I wasn't a fan. People were like this is very Tom Waits, and I started listening to it. And of course, like, what a joy to be in your late twenties just discovering Tom Waits, and yeah. like, oh my god, and like now I'm obsessed. Yeah, but uh. You know, the Southern thing, I think it's just more of a theatrical thing. I think that that's the thing that I love about theater, music theater, is that it borrows from all these different places and times Mm -hmm. and and sounds. And that's what Hudson Delta is. So Hudson Delta is literally, you know, I mean, there's... Hudson, The Hudson doesn't have a Delta, but like Manhattan is where the the rivers converge and go out to the sea. Right. And so Hudson being a New York thing and then Delta just being a vibe of like a Southern thing. So it's like, you know... I've heard it called skyscraper Americana too, theatrical Americana by like different journalists or whatever. And uh, so that's where that came from. Yeah. Well, the, the, the record has these many different vibes. There's definitely a strong like new Orleans vibe and definitely a strong country vibe. Was that intentional or was that just what the songs wanted? It's it's just what it became, you know, it's just what became, I'm just a firm believer that the ideas come from somewhere else personally, you know, uh, universe stuff I, I you know I personally believe as a songwriter that you tap into a source mm-hmm. and your life you catch it you know it's like your job like what do they say like Michelangelo uh not to compare myself by any means to like a Michelangelo but like he said he saw David in the marble hmm. you know before he, he carved it out mm-hmm. so it's the same you know it's your job to refine I feel like the ideas come and then you refine them and so I don't believe in throwing out ideas which is probably why the albums are as diverse stylistically I just don't believe in throwing it away I think that by nature if you're 
being relatively consistent with the musicians you're using. And if you have a producer who's kind of like, I produce it in a lot of ways, but the reason I always usually have a co-producer is to make sure that we talk about what Sonically. the vision is. We talk about what the vision is, and I make yeah. sure that it doesn't sound like song salad, so that it all uh-huh. sounds melded together. Well, I will say that I really loved the drum tones on yeah. that record. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, the big drum sound is always a, is very important to me. Like um, nice... The the snare like the, the, that's the first thing that I hear is the is the snare yeah and it it it, it like fit it fit the song yeah there, there are three ridiculous drummers on that um, yeah Josh Dion played all of Cocoon and then played this one and Josh has a great project right now called Paris Monster but he's he's played with a lot of he plays with uh, oh God why is this feeling right now guitar John Schofield oh shit um but like what I think he went to Wayne Patterson he had a great band called Josh Dion band for a while that was amazing like Americana vibe wow um Pat from that band plays with me now too Pat Firth uh, on the keys and Brian Colleen the bass player Josh is an animal I mean like like he can do anything and he's ridiculously talented and then Randy Schrager um who's with the Scissor Sisters he plays with Gabe Dixon now uh plays with uh Jesse Malin an incredible spacious awesome drummer I mean, all these guys know what to do. And then Mike Nappy mm-hmm. plays on the last track. Who Mike is the one who plays with me live. I mean, I've played live with all these guys. But, uh, you know, if you got a guy who knows their instrument, you know, right. and I, I had just said this on an interview with uh, Jamrazine the other day. But, you know, the idea is that you give everybody their pen, mm-hmm. you know, like, like not as in like a pen, like a play pen, you know, mm-hmm. or, or they're, they're stable, mm-hmm. you know. And you're like, this is you're where around. we run. Right. Right. Go wherever you want in there. Yeah. And then you got and you, you know, and pleasant surprises happen. You know, I mean, our, my keyboard player was like, I'm impressed that you kind of take guidance. You know, from Brian Forbes, he would say, like, he's like, let's just do this. Just, just, just put this aside. Put the idea you had aside. Just do this and just let's see how it goes. And, you know, my keyboard player, Dave Archer, and Pat also plays on the record. You know, he's like, you know, man, a lot of guys that I know, like, they, they have their idea and that's what they want it to mm-hmm. be. I was, I was like, well, we got to see where it goes, you know? Right. So, so sometimes you give it something a chance. The worst thing that happens is you go, it's not working. Right. You know, the best thing that happens is it turns out better than you thought, or it takes a whole different turn and makes it more interesting. But, but as a, but as a producer of your own music, that's, that's sometimes a hard thing to relinquish, right? Relinquish yeah. control of tone, sound, approach, playing, you know, but I, I love those moments too, where you let, you let the band decide. Like, yeah, we're, I, we're in this together. We're making this record together. I mean, what you know? What's that they say? I mean, I think they say this about a lot of things. But like, staffing is ninety percent of the game. Yeah, picking the right people. Yeah, if you pick the right people, you got to trust that you picked the right people. Mm-hmm. You know, so a lot of the job starts before you even start the record. It starts in who am I bringing in? How do you staff Hudson Delta? Because it does have so many moves. Like. Where do you even start? Well, some some things are you know serendipitous. Some things are who's available, right? right. <laughs> who's in town? And you, you know, recorded this in what twenty twenty? Uh, it was it recorded. Up? It was recorded in. I'm trying to think. Yeah, we were just finishing up as COVID came in. Mm. We were pretty much just finishing finishing it. So it was twenty nineteen August twenty nineteen through early twenty twenty. Got you. You know, we were doing all that and. uh you just kind of pick, you know, I, Josh Dion did a great job on Cocoon, so I knew I wanted to have him. Randy mm-hmm. Schrager, you know, some of the stuff that's on Hudson Delta started as just demos. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty particular about demos and just using the right people. I don't want to half-ass things. So the demos started to sound like a record anyway. Mm-hmm. So that was a lot of the well, players on and, that. And what is the difference between a demo and a finished song? Yeah. Like, like, what is it? Unless you're doing it on your garage band. It's, it's kind of, if you're doing it in a studio, you might as well just make it sound the best. I'm just, I always believe in making it sound the best it can sound at all times. And what does that mean? Yeah. Is that, is that, is that mastering? Is that mixing? Is it Quality. Because- you know, quality performance, and, you know. All right, but yeah. but but listen, man. Sometimes the best, and I have I've had a number of discussions with friends. If if we share demos, quote unquote, yep. they're like, "This is it. Don't fuck with this demoitis." Yes. <laughs> well, but also it just it's, it's right. Fine. It's right. Well, it's so, like Bruce Springsteen, Nebraska, right? Like a lot of that was all done on like what, like an eight track. So let's go. I'm mm-hmm. the, the fucking Beatles, man. Yeah. You know. Totally. Yeah. So. What what is what is the difference that the the difference between a demo and a and a finished product? It's just how it feels. Yeah. Does it feel right? Yeah. Did we get it? 
Yeah, is the vibe there. Right. It's all vibe. Right. Yeah, so that's the thing. We thought we were doing demos, and it, it wasn't a demo. <laughs> well, so that's how a lot of different players showed up. Yeah. You know, it was, it was just who was in the room at the time to do it. And then, you know, for a song like Sea of Galilee uh, that has Irish players, so I you know went to the guy who ran 18th Street, uh, 18th Street Pub because they have a – or bar because they, uh, they have a session – yeah, every Sunday. So I just went to that guy. I'm like, hey, I need session people. I need a, I need pipes. I need this. Yeah, you bring them in and just let them do their thing. Right. It's trust. Right. You know, but being in a city like New York or any city that you're seeing, you know, if, if you're spending time going out and listening to music, you know the people that you want, and then you just the reason that you hire them or bring them on to collaborate is you trust them. Right. You know. So that's that's kind of how it happened. You know, it was it was it was very. Uh, there was a lot of letting go with that record, you know, in Which a great is way. Awesome. Oh, yeah. it feels so good. Yeah, you gotta you let just, go of it. Yeah. Just let it live and let your players play. Yeah. And you might have an idea conceptually, but trusting that I know these people and it's gonna be fucking great. Mm-hmm. And we can move from and maybe they weren't the same players between you know the country kind of vibe and the and New Orleans vibe and the and the and the Irish vibe, but you just man, there's there's peace. There's just not a relaxation, but there's there's just this sense of they they will take care of the things that I don't no no yeah right. You can't know everything. No yeah, but you deliver a thing mm-hmm. and. Oh man, it's like relinquishing. It's yes. like just go do your thing, yeah. and it's gonna be fucking great. It's beautiful. The release is is, is awesome to do yeah. that, you know. And that's, and then for that purpose, when you bring in those players, you know, I mean, that's when you listen to all those Beatles records, those styles are all over the place. They're doing right. everything, but the thread, right, were the guys, yeah, who were playing it exactly. So it was gonna have a thread instinctually, right, be, or, you know, and sonically because it was still it was these guys playing different roles in different parts of songs oh, so good. but it was still them so yeah. that is the thread so it's like you don't have to you, you know you can worry about the like is this following a vibe is it doing right. this but it it is because it's the people who are playing right and i did notice that your your vocal approach changes mm-hmm. depending on the song yeah. like so like a new orleans thing you had a different like a maybe like a growl and the and the and the country thing you you affected your voice yeah. to fit that thing is that conscious or does that just happen? Just serving the song, yeah. You know, I mean, the one thing that was important, you know, for that is that I didn't want to have a fake southern thing at right. all, right? You know, because it's it's very important. You know, well, you're from you know Connecticut, yeah, Connecticut exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you know, so, so what are we? Is the theatrics yeah. of? But you know, a lot of people do right. say, and that ended up being a benefit in some ways because I have a lot of people who listen to that record and they go, I can't stand country, but for some reason. I love that record. Uh-huh. I'm like, you, you probably don't like twang. Right. You probably don't like twang. <laughs> All right. So, so you so. removed some of the twang yeah. and just sang like you would sing anything Myself. else. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, just follow the song and like, let it, you know, yeah. Serve the song. And what is, what is inspiring you as a songwriter and what kept you inspired during the pandemic? Um, you know, I was, what was fortunate for me during the pandemic was that we were finishing the record. So now mm-hmm. everything became about the the promotion of it. Um, the one thing that I wanted to do and why we waited to release it a little bit was because I wanted to follow it up with live shows. Right. But it got to a point where you weren't sure how long the pandemic was going to last. So right. we put it out. But uh, now, you know, jumping back into songwriting, kind of one of the things is, is that I'm a little nervous because I have a lot of lyric ideas and stuff like that. I always write music than lyrics. Mm. I think this next time out is going to be I might Bernie Taupin in it before I uh, Elton John it. Okay. You know, and I've, I've been saying this to people for a while. And then also I think it, I don't know, it might be more mellow. And I'm a little nervous about that too because I'm usually about production. and Not production, but like selling the song. Uh, so it's a little nerve-wracking. I might have to ask you about that because you're, you're very good at doing like the very intimate listening experience. I might, I might need a little bit of advice from you. Baby, I'm ready. <laughs> I mean, I, I charge you a small fee, but that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. I got it. I can I can buy a bottle of bourbon and some bitters. <laughs> that's perfect. That's it. Uh, pandemic, you felt inspired, or was it like I I have this creation, and the pandemic provides me some time to really refine the mixing and the mastering and the art. And yeah, the, you know that was it. Yeah, and it was it was a moment to take stock. You know, I mean. It was always obnoxious to see those social media posts like, it's a pause. Mm. But it really was. You know, yeah. I, I thought about the gigs I didn't want to play anymore. Yeah. 
Uh, I thought about the things I didn't want to do anymore. You know, I was lucky that I had just, you know, I mean, I think that in any album cycle for me anyway, it's like a purge, you know, you're, you're, pur- uh-huh. you're purging yourself of all these ideas you have. Yeah. So it was a moment of rest. Yeah. So that the new ideas could start coming in again. You and know, did I, they? Yeah, they're coming. Yeah. We're, I'm, I'm ready to, we were, I was just talking to Brian Forbes, uh, about starting a new record, you know, Fucking I'd love great. to have it out either in the fall or in the early winter. And started recording or uh, we're, we're going to probably start, uh, Hey guys in the band, uh, just so you know, we're probably going to start recording this. This is fresh and new. Uh, yeah, probably going to start sometime this summer. Great. You know, I'd love to have it out and I'd, I'd kind of like to crank it out fast, you did, know, instead of stringing it out. Like, did you get to tour on Hudson Delta? We've done so. Yeah, we, we play a lot. Mostly the Northeast is our market. Although I, you know, I just, I played with a band here in Phoenix. We just did a Nashville tour. We did, uh, I did three shows at Nashville and then did a solo set at, uh, Fox and Locke in um, Leaper's Fork. Uh, so we're going to be touring it more, but like the Northeast is kind of where we've inhabited, but we're going we're gonna to start expanding out Great. more and more now. So, and you know, it's, it, it's a thing like, you know, when you have a new record come out like Hudson Delta, it's been like, you know, journalists have been very, very kind. They, they love it. You know, they like the variety that, yeah. that it changes up or whatever. But you know, you're, you're always, it's hard to let go of the last thing. I mean, sometimes it's hard to lay down some songs because you want them to just live in your brain mm-hmm. as soon as you're laid mm-hmm. down it's it's an idea and it's, it's done it's, gone. it's done right right you know so that's what's been interesting it's like now coming to the end of hudson delta it's been out almost two years it's like we're doing the final publicity things for it right and now it's time for something new but you know the beautiful thing about creating a record and then doing the album cycle and the business end that a lot of us independent independent artists have to do is that you do that and now there's space for something new what was the inspiration to do kind of a New Orleans vibe? Like, where did that, where do you think that came from? I think, I think the New Orleans thing just came from theatrics, you know, I think, uh, but, 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 but what, how, I mean, it just like, so like, you know, uh, because there's remember, no, you, you, so you know about Stephen Foster, right? They call him like the father yes. of American music or whatever. Yeah. Um, and people have their debates about that, but like, you know, he would, he would write songs about the South all the time and he was, he was a Northern boy, you know, it's just, it's almost like you're singing to an idea of what you think it is. Okay. Okay. But, but then what would happen is, you know, Bourbon Street, when it first started, it was like, like, like tap dancing. Okay. When I brought it in to Danny Bernini in Northampton, you know, and Josh Dion, such a badass drummer, we're like, how about just, you know, and then you bring in Terry Adams. Yeah. So what actually made the New Orleans thing happen was that I had an idea that was more Broadway-ish. Interesting. But these players came in and they heard it that way. And uh-huh. it was about Bourbon Street. Right. You know, I'm more a Frenchman guy myself than Bourbon Street, but that, <laughs> it worked for the song. These guys came in and gave it the attitude that they heard uh, for the idea. So that's actually what made it that way was yeah. them. Yeah. I was singing about Bourbon Street in a very New York theater <sighs> kind of way. Chicago. And they came in and brought what they understand new Orleans music to be. And so it actually, again, to go back, the musicians brought a lot of that to life. So it wasn't like, you you, you know, like Alan Toussaint record was big for you or no. Well, I've been living in sin for about a month. Something turned around. It's something that I just can't understand the way I behave. Some people you can never save in my right hand. together to serve the song i mean that's yeah. what that's the thread of and this they changed they changed the opinion of, of what it should be. you know right. they're, they're like i think i'm feeling this i'm like try it right and then you know that's yeah. one of those glorious moments where uh, like oh shit that's so much better than like, what i thought thank we god do. yeah thank god i hired these guys because yeah it takes on a whole new life yeah 
Absolutely. What's next uh, for you, Jeff Tui? So, uh, new record. Um, working on it. Yep, working Band. on the new record or whatever. Uh, we got a couple tracks that didn't make Hudson Delta because I was very... Um, after we had recorded all the songs, I had a very clear sense of where I wanted the journey of the record to go, like as far as making the track order and all that. Mm-hmm. And some tunes just didn't fit, mostly because they were chiller, slower. Mm. Uh, and I just, I really wanted to have those levels. So yeah. I keep telling everybody this is going to be a mellower record, but then love it. there's a couple heavy couple tunes, like a couple like, like yeah. real like rocking Rocky tunes coming tunes. I'm like, it's probably going to be another record like Hudson Delta. <laughs> I hope, you know. So that's it. You know, make the record and then, uh, you know, just like really uh, focus on, I've learned to, as coincidentally, as I've become more successful artistically, or sorry, uh, professionally, it's because I've just started to focus on paying attention to the art. I think that when a lot of us are younger, a lot of us want the accolades. You know, it, it seems to be a natural thing for a lot of performers. And I've found that the more I let that go, the yeah. better everything becomes. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. you're not trying to please. I mean, I read two great, I read three great books on this. The Artist Way was very big in getting me to make the record too, hmm. um, which is a great 12 week like program in a book. I highly recommend it. Then I read The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, who uh, wrote uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance. And that one's like, The Artist's Way is like, here's a nice massage. You should be doing things. You are beautiful. (laughs) God wants you to make music kind of thing. Mm. War of Art's like, why are you fucking slacking? Mm -hmm. Make art. Get to work. And then I just read uh, Rick Rubin's Creative Act. Oh, cool. A Way of Being. And like a lot of these people, they all say the same thing. Stop worrying about how people are going to receive it. Uh, stop war- don't make music because you think it will affect pe- you know Stephen Pressfield is like if you make music based on what you think other people are like you're a hack yeah you know so I've started to just be like it's it's more letting go like I, we were talking about it's more like the universe is sending these songs at the time or this is what's coming to me you could say I gotta go with it right you know instead I, of throwing it away call downtown and watch it down the line I'm gonna let it all ride tonight Leave my money down But you can't see that You know me well I want the next thing To be better than the last thing yeah. And that's it That's in my head Like Do you think that it's like So if you get to a certain level Like right Like so say, assume I mean I think it's You know Hopefully this comes without arrogance I think that we're both professionals And we've done Good things artistically. We are professional musicians. You yeah, know, so we can say that so, so, objectively. Uh, yes. So, yeah. <laughs> so I think that you know, maybe you can't say it's going to be. Is there a point where like it's not going to be better? It's just going to be different. Like I wonder if there's a point where like, I can look back at breaking down the silence, my first album, and be like, oh my god, I'm wondering why I even still let this thing exist on mm-hmm. Spotify. Right. But some people love some of the stuff on there, right. so I don't take it off. Right. But um. You know, maybe we get to a point where we just keep growing, but it's not about it being better. That's why I'm really mm. a fan of Serve the Song. You know, one, mm-hmm. one of the songs that I'm going to be writing right now or that's that's that I kind of did like a little acoustic recording and sent to the uh, Library of Congress or whatever, is, you know, was, uh, you know, it's something like I Need You Like the Singer Needs the Song or, you know, mm-hmm. the, the lyric, you know it's, it's a working title right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. But the singer has nothing without the song. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of our in, you know industry and people who are the zeitgeist of listening to music, everyone assumes that the singer wrote the stuff. It's like the songwriter. I mean, mm-hmm. people you know Nashville knows this better than anybody. That the songwriter wrote that song, right? You know, and so I think that maybe as an artist, especially if you're a singer and a songwriter, you just follow the song and just try to do what's best for the song instead of trying to compare it to what you used to do. Well, I'm proud of your record. I think it Thank you, it goes. It has different feels, and, and those are my favorite records. You know, Steely Dan, great example, mm-hmm. can, has different moves, and, and every song takes you somewhere, and it makes you feel something somewhere else. Like, I love a song that, like, oh, I can see myself hearing it here, and I get that from your record. Thank you, man. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean... Steely Dan's one of my favorite, you know, you can always start a, a war on Facebook with this kind of stuff. You make a very bold statement. I love doing it because I'm like, yeah. this one's going to get 200 comments. And right. I'm just like, I don't remember what the exact quote was. But I was like, I think that Steely Dan is yes. the smartest band. You said, you said pop, harmonically. Yeah. yeah, harmonically. Yeah, yes. you got to clarify. I, saw, I yeah. saw this post and I was like, I'm going to enjoy this conversation. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I mean, there were a lot of guys, most of the guys I play with are like, 
Yep. But, you know, there's a couple of people who, like, lose their shit and they tell you that's sure. Marshall Tucker or something like right, that. You right, know, right, but, right, right, And that, you know, that's their opinion, too. But, I mean, right. Steely Dan I do is love, one of my you, favorites. You do, lo- you do love to poke the bear a little right. bit. Once, I, you know, I, like to, I like to call it stimulating conversation. <laughs> I call it poking the bear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that was like what I said. I said something about Zeppelin at one point. Yeah, too. I was like, I was rock like, and roll. I, band. I was like, I was like, we're all entitled to our opinions, but, but. Zeppelin is the greatest <laughs> rock and roll band of all time. <laughs> I mean, I agree with that. Uh, but Steely Dan is amazing. I love it. And my uncle Jim, who lives in Desert Hills, Arizona, here yeah. locally, like he introduced me to Steely Dan, and it, I remember I was in a metal phase at that time. You know, I was, I was yeah. in like eighth grade. Right. I just wanted to like you know. Shred, shred, and, and you know, yeah, it, everything was primal and carnal back right, then, you know. Right. And I remember hearing Babylon Sisters and being like, "Oh, but there's something else." But hold know? on. And his lyrics take you to another place too. They're so quirky and cool. That's what I'm saying. I love. Ste- we could do a whole podcast on. I mean, we how should. Awesome Steely Dan is. Yeah. Uh, well, shit. <laughs> I, you have no idea, but I've done 109 episodes about how <laughs> how awesome Steely Dan is. Love it. Uh, Jeff Tui. I appreciate your time. Great Thank to you. see you after hey, it's, all it's these good, fucking it's years. It is Holy good to, shit. It is, it is good to catch up, man. And, what and, a, and we'll keep doing it. I would you love know, that. I, I got family out here, so I, I'm putting Come a band on here like, you know, every, like, every once or twice a year. So. Let's go. What a pleasure, man. Right, and, man. And great to reconnect with you. And congrats in advance on your new record, man, because I'm I'm looking forward to it. Might need a Brian Chartman uh, duet on that one. Let's go. I'm not scared of shit. That's a plan. I love it. Peace.